1: Fascination is your brain's most intense state of focus. So when you're fascinated, it's it's a feeling of complete immersion. Some people call that flow. Mm-hmm. You can call it being in the zone. When an athlete is completely focused and fascinated, like think of Michael Jordan going to um, – to, to flying towards the hoop that that you're at your most accurate you at your most creative you you have your greatest opportunity to have a breakthrough and when we looked through the lens of neurology when I talked to neuroradiologists about what the brain looks like in a state of fascination it looks like it's falling in love it's firing on all cylinders everything's going smoothly it's it's completely engrossed mesmerized in the moment and uh, that's why when when you feel fascinated by a person or even even by a TV show or a book, you're, you're so in the flow that time goes by, uh, you, you, you connect fully with that object of your fascination.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot.
0: Sally, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: <laughs> I am I am fascinated by being
0: unmistakable. Well, you know, we had you here last uh, last year, maybe two years ago, when we were talking about your last book, "How the World Sees You at Your Best," uh, and you know, and it re- the conversation resonated with me so much that I literally had your, yeah, the album cover printed and framed and put it on my wall. Uh, so, you know, for those of you who, who want to listen to Sally's backstory, go back and listen to that interview. We'll be sure to link it up in the show notes, but I want to start a little bit differently today. Um, uh, and this is a question that actually came also from my business partner, Brian, which I thought was a really interesting way to start a conversation. So I know you've referenced siblings in previous books. So I want to ask you what your birth order was um and then what the impact of that has ended up being on the work that you've done with your life and what you've learned from mm-hmm. that uh from human, about human behavior psychology and relationships
1: <laughs> what an awesome question. You know, there are all kinds of studies that have been done on birth order and how it affects your personality and your worldview. I'm the baby of the family by quite a bit. And so the youngest, it, it, as is the case with me, tends to be more um, um, the creative thinker, the one who is non-traditional, kind of breaking out of boundaries. And uh, I grew up in an unusual family, as you as, as you probably know, because my, my older brother is, uh, he graduated from Harvard right around the same time that my older sister won three gold medals in school. Swimming in the Olympics. And so here I was as a baby of the family, totally respecting what my brother had done and what my sister had done, but also knowing that I wanted to find my own place in the world. I think there's something very something that. It, all of us can relate to that feeling of being being an underdog, being um, being the one that you're trying to figure out who you are, h- um, h- how you can stand out, how you can make a difference, how you can make your work heard and make it matter. And uh, and and so, growing up, my dad gave me the greatest piece of advice. He said he said to me like when I was seven years old, he put his arm around me and he said, "Sally, you don't have to change who you are. You have to become more of who you are." And I remember that so profoundly that my parents completely supported and validated each of their children in, in very different ways. And I, um, I, I, I think as, as parents, but also as leaders, it's important for us to do that, to take all the people that we work with and, and understand the way in which they deliver unique value, the way that they are most likely to succeed. And then you've got to custom build around that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, that's it's such profound wisdom. And, and I, there's two things that actually come for me. Like, I wonder what it is about you that made you self-aware enough at such an early age to realize what value that kind of advice would have later on in your life. Uh, and two, why do you think so many people actually start to become less and less of who they are as they get older?
1: Well, I think it, it, the, the reason why I was so able to profoundly hear it was because of insecurity, <laughs> because of that feeling of, of not being heard. There's, uh, there's something incredibly demoralizing about um, not feeling validated in a situation. And, and I didn't feel that in my in, – I did feel validated in my family. But uh, l- let me give you an example of what, what I've since learned in my research. We, we, we did a major market study in which we were asking people how much fascination – was actually worth to them in dollar amounts and one of the questions we had was if you could be the most fascinating person in the room how much would you be willing to pay for that and we found (laughs) this is going to blow your face off women will spend more to be fascinating than they spend on food and clothes combined in other words if, if if you can if you can help someone feel like they're the most fascinating person in the room it's so important to them that for women they'll pay more than food and clothes combined 15% of their take home income but and men are men are close behind it not that far but here's the learning people need to feel acknowledged. They need to have a voice. They need to be heard. It's true within companies. It's true within our culture. It's true in any type of organization or even a romantic relationship, just making the other person feel like what they're saying matters and they can make a real difference that, that, that they, that, that their words are going to be heard and remembered and shape action is what we all want more deeply than anything. Mm-hmm. To contrast that, another piece of research that we did, um, we asked people, um, are you a better driver than the average person? And 80% of people said, yes, I am a better driver than the average person, which makes no sense because 50% are above average, 50% are below. So they grossly, <laughs> they grossly overrate how they are driving. And then we asked, are you more fascinating than the average person? In other words, do you communicate in a way that's heard and remembered? and only 39% said yes. So we overestimate how good we are at many things, but we underestimate how good we are at our ability to communicate in a way that's heard and remembered. And I was confused by that finding at first until we looked more deeply into the numbers and we saw that people feel like they don't matter enough to be fascinating. They're afraid to be fascinating. And this brings me to the second part of your question, which was, why do we become boring over time? And the answer is because as we as we grow up and we have situations in which we don't make the team, we get fired from a job, we're scorned by somebody that we love, we're rejected, um, we fail, we start to acquire these layers of boring protecting us like a shield around us. But the problem is our most extraordinary traits are not the ones that are the easiest to use. Oftentimes what makes us fascinating, what makes us compelling, what makes people fall in love with us, whether we're creating content or we're going out on a first date, is what makes us different. And if we start to dumb that down, then we water down our potential, we water down our mark in the world. And so When in looking at how much people are willing to spend to be fascinating and yet they don't think they are fascinating, just demonstrates how much if 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 my work or or your work can help people feel fascinating and unmistakable, then it's it's a much bigger message than just creating a brand or or interviewing for a job.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that, uh, being the baby of the family that planted early seeds for this sort of bizarre career path that you've chosen, like to, you know, study fascination <laughs> of, of all things and really kind of study how to get people to listen to what you are saying. Um, and also what is the age gap between you and your siblings?
1: Uh, my brother's 10 years older, my sister's seven years older. Okay. So I'm, I'm the baby by a long shot. Yeah. Um, and my, so by the time I was by the time I was about eight, my brother and sister were out of the house, and I was essentially an only child. I think that I think that all creative people have a, a little damaged part in us, <laughs> and and I mean that in the most loving way. It's like that that there's there's some there's something on the assembly line that just didn't the screw didn't get input quite right, or or something happened that that hurt us that we don't want to just follow what other people say that. Somehow, along the way, we made a decision that we have to we have to find an alternate path. And I you know it, um, what's the expression um, necessity is the mother of invention? Uh-huh. Did I say that right? I believe so. Um, okay, well, anyway, the point is, you know it was it it became very important to me at an early age to not try to be the best because I didn't want to do head-on competition and instead try to be different mm-hmm. and that that became a core fundamental value of all the writing and all the research that i've done is we, we live in a culture in which it's so important for people to be the best and to be better than but the problem is if you're measuring yourself against your competition then you're just a me too mm-hmm. whereas if you can be different then that gives you m- massive competitive leverage and it's true for brands you know if if What I found when I went into advertising for the first half of my career was that every brand has to choose. You either have to have the biggest budget or you have to be the most fascinating. So if you if you have the biggest budget, you can just pound a message in over and over again. But if you don't have the biggest budget, then you must be the most fascinating in one particular way. In other words, instead of trying to be the best, Mm -hmm. you you should be different. And 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 that's really what the that what what I learned in the science of fascination is different is better than better different is better than better when it comes to brands when it comes to people when it comes to conversations you know like this conversation that you and i are having is <laughs> is so massively not scripted <laughs> and and as a result it it like this is how people really show up is when you give them the opportunity to be different instead of just following a um a, a, a a, a rigid scheduled routine script.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's funny because you know we're we're talking so much about the core thesis of my own book, which you know the idea that being the only is much better than being the best. Um, because you know, when you're the only person who does what you do, the competition becomes completely irrelevant. And you know, you and I were just talking about uh, Mars Dorian, who we who we both know, and I always say it, it's kind of impossible to find a replacement for Mars. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious, uh, one other question uh, about growing up uh, with siblings who had such, you know, grand achievements, I mean, three gold medals in Harvard. One of the things I, I always wonder is how the tension of uh, seeing siblings who've accomplished such things get resolved. And I am asking this because it's something that I don't know that I've resolved entirely. My sister is the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. And at moments, I look at that and think, wow, That's pretty damn impressive. Uh, So I'm curious, you know, based on the experience that you've had uh, with siblings who have achieved such grand things, like how you resolve that, I mean, for lack of something better, a sense of inferiority that, that shows up sometimes.
1: It's probably very similar to what it feels like when you have a startup or when you're, you're the, the lowest rung person in a department that, you look at the way other people have succeeded, and you have to make a decision. I can either follow what they did and try to outdo them, or I can pick a completely different path and be the greatest at that. And I remember looking at—remember looking at my brother and my sister—and being like, "Okay, well, you know, my thing isn't going to be academics; it's not going to be athletics. So I'm going to go into marketing because that's what you do when you're not good at athletics and academics." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so choosing a creative path was not just about. It, it wasn't just choosing away from a path. In other words saying, well, I'm not going to choose those paths. Therefore, I have to find something different. It was that creativity so spoke to me. And I remember when I I graduated from Duke University and they didn't even have a marketing program. They didn't have any kind of creative programs. And I was really floundering trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I literally remember it was like a week before graduation. I still didn't have a really clear idea of what my profession was going to be. And then I discovered this thing called being a copywriter in advertising. And and it was like my heart sang. I, I felt so happy head over heels in love with the with, with being a copywriter, being able to find the words to describe what it what, that sort of um, unidentified golden nugget that lies inside of a brand or a company or a product or an experience and then bringing that to life. And I loved my time in advertising. It was just it was a decade in which it was a, a whirlwind romance. I was the number one most award winning copywriter when I was 24. And I uh, opened up my first agency when I was 27. Um, but the problem is I didn't like talking through brands. In other words, if you're a copywriter, it's not your it's not your voice to the consumer. It's you have to filter through the brand. And then eventually I just decided I wanted to be able to have my own voice in which I get to talk to people, which is why I tr-
0: transitioned into becoming an author. Mm-hmm. So I've asked this question to a lot of people. Um, as somebody who discovered... A love for something at such an early age. Uh, Why do you think that so many of us miss that in our adult lives? Because I listened to you tell that story and I think, where the hell was the advertising agency opportunity (laughs) when I graduated from Berkeley? And then the other question that raises is, were you a good student? Uh, Because I was a terrible student and I'm really (laughs) curious about that.
1: Uh, I wasn't a great student because... um, what I loved about advertising was you had to find something that didn't exist before. You know, right. like the agencies that I worked in, we were working on brands like Nike and Target and Mini Cooper, Coca-Cola. So the goal was how do you come up with something that's never been thought of or or written before or, or created into a storyline? And um, and I, I think it's very hard in school to be the person who wants to do something no one's ever done before when you're graded on a bell curve. Mm-hmm. With a with with a with a regimented, I mean, growing up in school, you have to stay in line and raise your hand, and it's it's not exactly conducive to instilling creativity. Um, but to your, uh, I think it's funny that you and I are both talking about. Um, I went to Duke, you went to Berkeley, and we're talking about how we weren't good students. Well, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere along the way, we had to have done something. Um, I uh, so here's the thing. I think um, when. I think it, uh, to, to answer the first part of your question, can I tell you a a very hard personal story? Absolutely. Um, advertising was very thrilling and kind of, it tapped into my soul. It was some, I felt like I had finally found what I was meant to do and, and it was going very well. And I remember my, my salary doubled like every year for, for several years. And then I I, um, I was asked to open up a major advertising agency office in Los Angeles and um, so I left my own company to go have this um, have, have this experience of working with people who are incredibly smart on major global brands and opening day of my new office that I just opened was September 10th of 2001 wow. so, um, you know, the world came to an end, and it was it it. I did I, you know there there are not words to describe it. So um, I had hired people away from other jobs. I was the sole breadwinner of my family. I had a three month old baby, um, um, but yet it, on, on a much higher level, there were there were. It was just it was uh, it, the the darkest time that for most of us we can ever possibly imagine for our country. And, and I, um, and that, that created a huge crisis for me because advertising is often so superficial and it felt like there wasn't really deep meaning in that. And, um, and I became completely disenfranchised with advertising because it felt like it was just slapping a a marketing membrane on like, it's exactly what people didn't need right then. And, and on a personal level, they really didn't need it because marketing budgets are the first to get slashed whenever there's any kind of, of crisis. And so I uh, – um, and so I – I my very first book that was ever published came out with Penguin. It was named Radical Careering. And Radical Careering was about the notes I wrote to myself and that I wrote to other people um, to keep them um, – to. To help them find meaning and um, inspiration, even in the worst possible time. And I would never have written that book if it if if I hadn't gone through this experience of trying to lead a company through um, through, through this in, incredibly bleak chapter. And so in a weird way, it allowed me to reorient my career that I was still doing what I loved before, which was in a sense being a copywriter, but helping people find that inspiration within themselves instead of finding it in a product. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you were just, you were asking, how do, how do we find this? Um, how do, how do we find what, what, what we swoon over? And, and the, the reality is, I think that if you find the core qualities of of what you're doing when you are totally in the groove and in the zone and confident and you have that feeling of like this is what I was meant to do and it kind of like you don't even have to do it it just kind of does you you know that mm-hmm. you you feel um it, it's it's a euphoria to do to do that um and that can change throughout our lives that it, it was originally for me in advertising then it was being an author then it was being a speaker and now it's more like content creation in whatever the form of media is. Hmm.
0: You know, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is you, of all the things you could do during an incredibly bleak period, you actually directed the energy from it into doing something like writing a book. And I'm wondering why, or more importantly, how, uh, we take darker periods of our lives and turn them into something valuable.
1: You know, that's such that's such a good question, because the problem is when you're going through a dark period, you may not even know it's a dark period. You just think life sucks. <laughs> yeah. He, do, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and you, you, you and I spoke about how there the, you've shared that experience yeah. before, too. And. Actually, the situation got worse, the situation I was describing to you that it just Well, or should I say it didn't get better? And here's what happened. Um, I got pregnant with twins. And I lost one of the babies. And when you have twins and you lose one of them, you have to, it, it's the, the odds are very high that you'll lose the other one because it, you can't, um, it just, I won't go into details, but so I had to go on complete bed rest and I had to quit my job. And I was, like I said, I was a sole breadwinner of the family. So I was basically unemployed, flat on my back. I wasn't allowed to do anything stressful, which meant I couldn't work. I couldn't do, I couldn't even really do emails. And so it, it was a very contemplative part of my life where I had to almost like meditate on this baby that I wasn't being creative. I was creating. And um, it was a huge identity shift for me because I had always thought of myself as being a creative director or at least being a writer. And I couldn't do that. And so I had to, um, just kind of be a vessel for this baby. But as soon as, as, as soon as the baby started getting stronger, then I started writing down what I'm describing for you and saying, what can I do to make this time matter? So it is not, what can I do that I can capture this to, to pay it forward And so I started going through the emails that people had sent me over the years as I'd mentored them. I started finding the threads of what I said to them when they were going through a dark time. And it was kind of like that the, that those conversations guided me then trying to where I needed to be mentored moving into the future. And it was out of that, that I wrote, I wrote my first book. And by the time the, by the time my baby was born, um, I was ready to send the manuscript off to penguin. And so it was kind of this like co-collaboration between me and my pregnancy between me and my son. Mm. And, and I, and, and so that's, that's the advice I would have for um, we all, we have dark times and sometimes they can seem completely insurmountable and, and so, so black and so cold inside. And if there's any way to kind of map, what you're doing or map how you feel that then that can be of tremendous service to other people because whether, you know, for you'll never lose a baby. I mean, you'll never lose a pregnancy, but yet you can, you can completely understand the experience of being a mother and having a loss and being, I was crippled. You know, I just like, I, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was mourn. And, and then to lose, to, to lose the opportunity to have a job, to to be afraid of income, losing income, i mean of, you know, not being able to provide for my family. and there's something very connected and human and real about those times that the more that we can make them matter, the the more that we'll be able to look back on them not only for ourselves but to offer that up for other people. and 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 i know that you've you have done the same too and i really admire that about you. Hmm.
0: And let's get into why we're really talking today, which is to talk about this entire concept of fascination So Mm -hmm. um, I want to actually take tease this apart based on the introduction of your book And I think you know one of the first things you said in part one is you talk about how and why the brain becomes fascinated So let's do a deep dive into that first
1: Sure, um Fascination is your brain's most intense state of focus. So when you're fascinated, it's it's a feeling of complete immersion. Some people call that flow. Mm-hmm. You can call it being in the zone. When an athlete is completely focused and fascinated – like think of Michael Jordan going to um, to, to flying towards the hoop, that, that you're at your most accurate, you at your most creative, you're, you have your greatest opportunity to have a breakthrough. And when we looked through the lens of neurology, when I talked to neuroradiologists about what the brain looks like in a state of fascination, it looks like it's falling in love. It's firing on all cylinders. Everything's going smoothly. It's, it's completely engrossed, mesmerized in the moment. And uh, that's why when, when you feel fascinated by a person or even by a TV show or a book, you're, you're so in the flow that time goes by, uh, you, you you connect fully with that object of your fascination. I started looking at it from the perspective of if you fascinate somebody, In other words, like a client or um, uh, even your family around the dinner table or a, a room full of people to whom you're pitching, how is the outcome different? And what I learned is that fascination is different than interest. It's different than paying attention. It is a deeply primal instinctive force that when we tap into it, people are far more likely to listen to what we say, to hear what we're saying, to take action on it, to buy our product, to pay more for our product. Uh, just from purely from a marketing perspective, we saw when we did our, our market research, fascinating brands can charge up to 400% more for the same product. In other words, if you're selling a commodity product, if your service is interchangeable with somebody else's but yours is fascinating, even just by being 5% different, that you can charge far more. For the product, so for all of us, I mean, we're 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 all trying to get a message across, whether we're teaching our dog to fetch or trying to um, sell our online social media services. And so, the goal can't just be to try to break through by by earning attention, because you know, the average attention spans what, like nine seconds? Yeah. So, um, so it, I'll, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, the other day, I bought. I I, I was at a gift shop and I bought um, this toy, kind of a a candy gift that was called dinosaur food. And I thought, this is so cool. My kids are going to love dinosaur food. And it had a picture of a T-Rex on the cover chasing after terrified kids. And it cost about $4. So I brought it home and the kids loved it. Ah, you brought dinosaur food. That's so cool. And it, they were absolutely thrilled, and I was the heroic mom that brought it home. Well, when I looked more closely at what I had actually purchased, it was five gummy worms and you know if I were to go into Costco and buy those gummy worms, it would cost about ten cents mm-hmm. and I'd paid four dollars. but the experience that that packaging created was so fantastic. it was this bonding thing where they were chasing each other around like dinosaurs and um, and there's the, we have the opportunity no matter what our marketing budgets are to to Not just push the same product, but to actually bring something to people's lives to give them an experience that that matters more than what we're actually selling.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned fascination being kind of like a state of flow when we get really absorbed in something. I mean, is there are there things that we can do to trigger that when we sit down to work? Um, can you become intensely fascinated with a book? Or are there things that I can do in my own life so that I don't lose interest in what I'm doing, or I don't, you know, find myself wondering what the hell I'm doing on Facebook when I should be, you know, writing or doing something <laughs> of actual value?
1: Well, uh, I'm not going to answer that question from a productivity point of view <laughs> okay, because I do the same thing that you do, yeah. and you and I see each other on Facebook. Right. Um, I'm going to answer it from a slightly different perspective. Okay, we found that. Uh, income is directly correlated to how fascinated you are by your work. Now, I don't mean by your job. Yeah. I mean the more we asked people, we asked a thousand people around the United States, how often are you fascinated in your work? How deeply are you fascinated? And how much money do you make? That was that was part of the part of the questionnaire. And we found that there's a direct correlation between how much money you make and how fascinated you are. So if you're doing something in which you're not fascinated, it's not that you can't make a lot of money, but they, it becomes much, much more difficult because you can't immerse yourself into that state of flow in which you're at peak creativity. So One of the, one of the neurologists that I, that I talked to in my research around this described it like muscle memory. That, you know, um, do you play a sport? I'm a surfer. Oh, of course, of course, yes. So when you're (laughs) surfing, you're probably not thinking, oh, I need to move my foot over a little bit. Oh, now I need to orient my body in space this way. It probably comes very naturally for you.
0: I mean, after, after thousands of waves, you don't even think about it.
1: After thousands of waves. Right. So, so there's, there's kind of a muscle memory that you, because you don't, your brain is not conflicted and confused and distracted. There's not a lot of, um, you're not going haywire. You don't feel overwhelmed that you can really put yourself into it and become, become the best surfer that you possibly can. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that.
1: And so what the what the neurologist was describing, he was using um, skiing as a metaphor, but he was saying when 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 you're doing a hobby or you're with someone that you love deeply, you don't have to think you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to try. It's just naturally there. And that that's what happens when we become fascinated. We drop the mask for a minute and we can fully immerse ourselves in the activity and be our absolute best. So you described a moment ago you were asking almost from a productivity perspective, how can we have those moments? Well, what I can say is, uh, different people have different ways of of getting into that zone of fascination for me I have to listen to I have noise cancelling headphones I listen to the same song over and over again so it's almost like a trance I have to block out every visual stimulation I've got to like lock up my social media so I'm not allowed to get on and um and I kind of have rituals that allow me to tell my brain okay now we're getting into a state of fascination and I know about myself that the first hour that I write it's not going to be awesome it's the second and third hour. So I can't write something great in the 30 minutes in between two phone calls. I have to, I go into my calendar, I block it off. So my whole team knows you can't, I, I have four hours where I'm going to be writing from here to here. Um, I'm a morning person, but whatever everybody's thing is, it's sort of like the way baseball players have their lucky socks I and mean, you've got to have your ritual and your routine, um, whatever yours is. And, And one of the things that we learned in um, in our research over the years is that when when people are fascinated in their work, that they are their most confident and they love their jobs the most. And we tested this. Are you do you love your job because you're fascinated or are you fascinated because you love your job? And we found that um, when when. When you're doing an activity that you love, whether it's fishing or doing spreadsheets or writing content, whatever it is, that that's really you at your best. I mean, that's the ultimate you. And so to, to proactively find more opportunities for you to be able to express that side of yourself is going to give you much greater joy than um, than than anything else. That said, only 40% of people would describe their job as fascinating. And I don't have the number in front of me, but it's like 7% of people think their boss is
0: fascinating. <laughs> Considering the bosses I've worked for? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say that's You're accurate. Right.
1: But not you. Not you. Your team would never say that.
0: <laughs> All right. So let's let's do this. Let's talk about uh, what you call the seven advantages and, and how they work and how they create this instant, uh, intense state of focus.
1: Yeah, there. W- w- when I first started looking at this, I, w- I was actually in 2006 when I when I was ready to write my next book, and I was looking for a big juicy topic I could sink my teeth into. I was studying attention and why do we pay attention to certain people and not others. And I'm glad I didn't pursue that angle of it because that has that that field has kind of been exhausted um, in in many ways. But it was in the path of looking at why are certain things more interesting than others that I I stumbled upon this. That this uh, neurological state of fascination and how we become in a spell that we're, we're hypnotized when we, when we get into this state. So I started taking all the great messages across time, political speeches, uh, sermons, um, winning emails, what, whatever, any, any type of message or idea or brand. And I started putting them into buckets to try to find what's the system behind this and um, how can we start to deconstruct what makes why exactly an idea is fascinating. And initially I had 16 different categories that included things like surprise and um, audacity. And, and then it, my, my agent gave me a great piece of advice. He said, um, you need each one to be different enough that they don't replicate, but um, few enough that they that you don't have any that you don't need so that you don't have any superfluous. And and so originally there were seven different fascination advantages. And so I, uh, my, initially I was looking through the lens of branding, looking at ads, looking at marketing and putting them into these seven categories, like Um, prestige, which is the language of excellence, prestige brands are the ones that raise the bar that uh, they're highly aspirational. They can charge more because they add a lot of perceived value. Um, I did a piece of research in which I gave two women, two pairs of sunglasses and one pair had a Chanel logo and the other one didn't. And I asked them how much they'd be willing to spend for these two pairs of sunglasses. And they were willing to spend four times more for the pair with the Chanel logo, even though they were exactly the same sunglasses. So, what the women were buying was sunglasses, but what they were paying for was the logo. And, and similarly, we as individuals can raise our perceived value. If we tap into the prestige advantage, or we can raise the, raise the price point or raise our fees of our products and services. Um, over time I started to evolve. Can you tell, I talk with my hands so much that I keep hitting (laughs) the microphone. So we hear this like little noise. What that means is I'm starting to get really excited and like my nose is getting sweaty. Um, When, uh, when I, so, so the seven different advantages, you can think about them like seven different languages that a brand can speak. Um, And, as for, for those of us who are listening to us, both people who are listening in our audience, <laughs> um, I, I developed an assessment that measures which of these advantages your brand is already using. And you can find that at brandfascination.com. It's a free assessment. We just released it. Awesome. In fact, we haven't even talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's um, passion, which is the language of relationship. Passion brands, are, are um, they're, they're sensory, they're emotional, they're evocative, they, they don't rely on facts. They're all about creating an emotional connection. There's uh, the power advantage. Power is the language of confidence. And these are the brands that have a really strong opinion in the marketplace. They're not afraid to be the leader. They're the authority. They take charge. And uh, you can think of Google or TSA. Um, there's the innovation advantage, which are brands that are, are completely oriented around creativity, breaking up the status quo, um, Virgin or Apple. There are Mystique brands. Mystique is the most rare of all the languages Um oh, uh, less than less than six percent of brands speak the language of mystique. Mystique is about listening and asking questions, and not necessarily thrusting yourself into the limelight, but instead uh, finding out about your customers and your clients, and and maybe even withholding information. The way the the way Jägermeister hints that it has elk's blood and opiates, <laughs> but um, but never really gives away the secret. Uh, there's the trust advantage. trust is the language of stability. These brands are are comfortable um, they're they're reliable they're dependable they're even predictable in in good ways and bad ways. It, this is the the diner that you go to that has the the meal that you know exactly what it's going to taste like. Well, an interesting piece of research around trust is every brand wants to be trusted because the word is very loaded. But neurologically, trust means patterns, patterns that your brain recognizes. And the more you recognize a pattern, then the more you're fascinated by it. And that's why you like to put a song on repeat. You like it more the third time you've heard it than the first. And it's why you think your mother's spaghetti sauce tastes better than than somebody else's. And it's also why when you look at somebody you love, that you can feel a rush of emotion without literally seeing their face because you recognize the patterns. problem is. A brand can't develop trust until it's had so many exposures to the consumer or the customer um, that it, it it takes decades it can often take decades to build trust and hundreds of million dollars hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising so it's very rare for new brands to to use the trust advantage anyway these are that's a that's a quick look at the seven advantages. And and how brands use them. But but the really cool thing is your brand doesn't have to compete in a specific way. There are seven ways that you can be competitive, seven ways that you can grow and and build
0: your business. So we've looked at it from the standpoint uh, of brands. Uh, Can you actually look at this through the lens of like an individual as well?
1: yes absolutely and and and, as you may remember, that was um my last book, "How mm-hmm. the World sees you," was all about how do people see you in other words, what kind of impression do you make so that you 're most likely to be perceived as impressive and influential um, what are the qualities people that people see in you that allow you to add value and make you more desirable at work and at home. And we measured almost a million people. And over the course of that research, what we found is you're communicating certain qualities, whether you realize it or not. Um, and that you know, there are certain situations in which you probably feel like you're at your best, and and you can reach that state of fascination that that we were talking about earlier, in which you feel like you're in the flow, you're in the zone, and you're gonna, you, you know, you can over deliver, you know that you can um, re- just crush an assignment, and then there are other situations where you're exhausted and it feels like quicksand, like ugh, mm. and. So when, so that assessment is named the fascination advantage, and you can check that out at our website, how to fascinate. In fact, let's, let's give your audience a code okay. so they can see it. Okay. So I'm going to make the code Rao, R-A-O. Okay. already. Is that good? Yeah, that's perfect. So we'll, I'll give you that. Maybe you can do it in the show notes. So that's, so there, there are two ways you can think about this system. It works with individuals, with your personal brand or your team, and then, Um, then you can also use it to look at your business and your products and services. And that's part of the reason why I released this new version of the book so that the two systems could work perfectly together like an algorithm. Hmm.
0: So one of the things we've talked about is the ability to customize uh, any message with, uh, these tactics and the uh, tactics and these ideas. And then I know you mentioned that there's a five step action plan. So if we can wrap up with going through those, um, I think that'll be really interesting and, and really useful for our listeners.
1: Okay, you know what? I'm <laughs> I'm I'm opening up to my I'm opening up to my page so we can be following along with the same thing. <laughs> have you ever found? Isn't it weird when you write something, but then you have to go back and kind of like lock into it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. You know, like yeah. So because the book's only been out for a week, I'm still like I'm turning to page two fifty eight. Um, the, the here's the system when you find the people within your within your organization, whether it's just you and somebody else or a team of 100 that, that are going to be the ones that are going to be the thought leaders for what the brand stands for. And I recommend finding people from different departments if you can, if you have different departments, because marketing doesn't live inside of a marketing department. It lives inside of the culture that people that live and breathe it every day. And then um, get a copy of the book for each person so you have the same system that you're following along with. And then go to brandfascination.com, do the assessment so that you can find what your primary advantage is, that the advantage that your brand is most likely to use to become impossible to resist. And then you just go through step-by-step the system that I laid out in part two and three. And I'll give you an, uh, an example of it we found that when a brand identifies what makes it different than its competitors, that, it, that, that that's a huge competitive advantage, like we were talking about earlier. The other part of it is, what does the brand do best? And so I, I, put, this, I put this system that I'd been using for, for my decade in advertising that I had kind of developed as my own little shortcut and I created it as a branding hack, kind of a, a hack to get very quickly f- through the creative process to um, having a strategic brief. Because once you've got that strategic brief, it becomes like a it, it's, it lights the way to your direction. It becomes the North Star of, of all the work, all the messaging that you should do. So the anthem is created from two parts how your brand is different, what your brand does best. How the brand is different is what you find out when you take the brandfascination.com assessment. What the brand does best is what you find in part three of the book to help you customize your message. So it's almost like somebody, once you go through the system, it's like somebody handing you, here are the five words that you probably should be using and you can literally use these five words or you can uh, use them um strategically as a as as a guide to how your messaging is going to be most effective so it's taking what i was doing in the world of advertising as a creative director uh, when i was working on projects that went on for six months or a year and distilling it down into a process that you can do about an hour by ushering you in through the back door
0: Hmm. well this has been awesome uh, as I expected it would be because our, our other conversation was just as amazing too. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. <laughs> what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Their quirks, the things, the things about them that they sometimes hide, the things that they put in a box and put on a shelf and close the door behind it and walk away, the things that over the course of their life Teach them how to be boring because they're afraid of rejection. Um, I he, he, the, here's the here's here's how I say it to myself. You don't learn how to be fascinating or unmistakable. You unlearn boring. So the goal is to unlearn boring, unlearn all those uh, all those layers of inhibition that we gain over our lives, and then apply those differences and in turning a disadvantage, a so-called flaw into your greatest asset.
0: Hmm. Well, this has been fabulous. And, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you and this has easily been one of my favorite conversations I've had this year.
1: Yay. Oh, but me too. I, I love being able to hear what you're up to. I'm so excited for your new, your new book to come out and it comes out, August second. Yep. August Is that 7. right? Woo! whoop. whoop. Yeah. Okay, Mike. You and I should do a little like, like bump, bump. You know, like a little, like a little, like I'm, I'm sitting right now. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you like fist bumps or like <laughs> hip bumps. That um, you know, it's, it's, it's scary and weird to go through a launch, and I'm so proud of you for the progress that you have already made. I'm, I'm really excited to watch this launch and Thanks. and watch what you do in the world.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel
1: style with Quinn's.